0: Hey, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. I do want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including Monticello College, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And I have a brand new sponsor that I would like you to go and visit there on the show notes. It's a beautiful housing development that is underway in southern Utah, since that used to be my old stomping grounds. I'm going to say if you are headed that direction, you should probably take a look. I mean, you you may actually send me a thank you card if you do, because I bet you're going to want to go there. So I have a very special guest joining me today. Her name is Alexandra Hudson and uh, Lexi you and I have talked before. It's good to have you back on the show for people meeting you for the first time. Tell us about who you are and what you do.
2: Thanks for having me again, Brian. Uh, I'm Lexi Hudson, and I'm passionate about ideas and storytelling. And um, after I, I, I was raised in a home that um, really nourished the life of the mind and curiosity and, and ideas, and um, so I wanted to dedicate my life to to offering that opportunity to others, I ended up at the U.S. Department of Education and kind of in this big bureaucracy dedicated to education, the largest in the world. And I was disillusioned that surprise surprise it didn't really care that much about the ideas <laughs> that I that I had, had so uh, been so passionate about it wasn't very a very curious environment it was a big kind of big bureaucracy and um, and so I, I left very discouraged disillusioned by both kind of the interpersonal hostility I endured um, as part of our toxic political climate and also um, and uh, and also because of the the ch- educational challenges it just didn't care about it didn't care about the true the good the beautiful these things that I love. And, and so that first challenge is the, is the um, topic of my first book I'm working on right now on civility and personhood and human dignity. And what do we owe the other um, in this thing called society that we find ourselves in. And the second book I want to work on is on education and renewing the life of the mind and curiosity, the way that education was originally envisioned. So, and that's the, the theme of my new project called civic Renaissance, just trying to reignite The life of the mind and curiosity that we all need to um, to be fully human.
0: I'm thinking this is a very good time, though, for the message that you bear. And here's why. Uh, Right now, a lot of people's paradigms are being, how would you say, shifted. Right. We're we're experiencing things and we are we are seeing things. And a lot of people are coming to realizations about uh, things that they believed were very solid now turned out to be kind of flimsy. And some things just haven't held up. So a lot of people are having their first real reality check in a long time and that means they are looking for answers one of the big things i hear constantly is what can i do things seem to be getting out of control i'm scared i want to do something i got to feel in control what can i do and um lexi I'm i'm a huge believer in uh you have to start with yourself before you're going to fix anybody else or you know society's problems we have to start with ourselves you speak the language of someone who has found the value in a classical liberal arts education and and I'd like to ask you to introduce introduce my audience to this if, if someone has, isn't familiar with what what constitutes a liberal arts education, how would you explain it to them in a way that didn't intimidate them and make them run away
2: thanks Brian so i would I would break down the term liberal arts into into its two component first liberal um we often associate the word liberal with politics. You know, there are conservatives on one side of the spectrum, liberals on the other, but that's not what liberal means in this context. Liberal comes from... It's derived from the word for freedom, like to be free, liberty, and and that's what this this mode of education does. It it, it orders our loves and it cultivates our minds so that we can be truly free and truly exercise our freedom as as human beings and not be slaves to um, to just our circumstances or s- slaves to our our impulses. It cultivates our self control and our rationality in a, in a way that allows us to be liberal, to be truly free. And then the second component is, is arts. And um, I come from um, a Christian background and, and I believe that we are all created in God's image and that, that God created a humanity. And, um, and that means that we are each creative. Each of us have, has a, as a kernel of, 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 dignity that, that has divinely inspired us to be, um, to be creators in our environment, whether it's, uh, there's a great book called Shop, class as soul craft you know the notion that there's dignity <laughs> in the vocational uh endeavors whether it's <laughs> whether it's uh mechanics or carpentry like that that's creative that that's that's a beautiful um, thing you, you can be you can be da vinci or 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 raphael or michelangelo like doing incredible sculptures or masterpieces you can be a writer like me or you you can be a carpenter i an electrician. We are all built to be creative. We, we have this yearning, this this um, um, desire to to be creative and create uh, as we were created. And um and and the liberal arts education it it, it it's, it's a it's a vision of a well-rounded human being, a well-rounded education that gives us um a, a smattering of of um of opportunity to dabble in a lot of these different. Um, genres these different disciplines grammar rhetoric philosophy theology mathematics physics and 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 to give us this basic core of knowledge that allows us to keep learning and to Nourishing our minds, our hearts and souls and our curiosity for the rest of our lives. And that's what a liberal arts education is and can do for you.
0: I think it was Plutarch who said something about the mind is not a vessel to be filled. It's a fire to be kindled. And and absolutely. When when you approach education from that standpoint, um, it doesn't become a burden. It's not like, oh, I got to go read a book. I have to, you know, I got to take a test or, you know, I have to study for something. It's it's a self-driven desire to understand to, to better comprehend the world around us, talk to me about the power of great books. Most people have them for decoration on their bookshelves. What happens when a person, you know, overcomes their fear of words they may not know, and they pick up one of those books and start to really sincerely read it and study it? What what takes place within them?
2: The great books is um, this kind of core that, that it really does change. It's not really a set um, a set curricula or anything. It's, 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 um, but there are some, some thinkers, some authors, some texts that are generally considered to be crown jewels and, and just human achievement and, and, and their beauty and their truth and their prose, uh, and in their significance in especially, um, in just, in just the human tradition, the human context. And, um, and, and what makes these books great is that they get, they they are timeless in that they they ask the fundamental questions about our humanity who are we why are we here? What is our purpose? And and what is the best way to do this thing called life in community together? Um, and, and so the, I would say that the great books are united in asking and, and offering answers to, in some cases, uh, or just reflections on these these big, important questions in life. And and Brian, I think you're absolutely right. As you said earlier, we're in this very pivotal moment where uh, we're, we're forced to ask those questions again today, the things that we had certainty in, the leaders we had certainty in. In. the um uh, polling techniques or scientific methods that we had faith in you know all of these things uh we're forced to to reevaluate and question and kind of zoom out um and that 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 um that i think provides a really important opportunity for the role that um these texts and these thinkers that have come before us have have thought about these questions too and we can both take we can take comfort in that and we can look to them and say okay like the world was was falling apart when, when Rome was sacked in in, <laughs> in yep. the fifth century. Like like what what were the people, the thoughtful people who were living through that then when, when literally the, the, the buildings around them were burning and people were dying in front of them? What how, how did they approach these questions? And um and, and what can we learn from that? How can we take comfort from that and, and be guided that by that in our own in our own moment?
0: You know, it's a smart person who learns from his own mistakes. But it's mm-hmm. a much smarter or wiser person who learns from what others have had to learn before them.
2: Yes, And, and that's exactly. that's
0: the kind of wisdom that you can tap into. Um, you know, I, I I worry sometimes that uh, we've come so far in the direction of <laughs> oh, I just want to be entertained. That people look at someone who reads an actual book as kind of like oh well, la <laughs> ti da. I don't know how you break down that stigma. That was once that's once what we did. You know, if you had some spare time, you found some shade and you a good book, and you could pass some time that way. Perfectly respectable. Now it's kind of a questionable thing for some reason.
2: It's so true. It's so true. I mean, someone um, uh, it was not, this is not original to me, but I remember reading someone once analogized our current media culture as like junk food. It's like, it's the stuff that um appeals to our basest uh, taste buds like just the sweet yep. purely sweet purely salty <laughs> purely fatty that's not that in, in excess is not good for us um, in, in small doses those can, things can be good and, and 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 useful and beautiful but um but how um, a really sophisticated palate like a really sophisticated mind wants to be challenged and to be challenged means um you know reading reading a good book reading a reading, reading a great book maybe even reading um um, a book in the original language. Um, one, of <laughs> books, yeah. uh, one of my favorite books, Brian. Yeah. One of my favorite books, Brian. It's a self-help book from 1908. Okay. So 100 years ago. Let's, oh, go let's, ahead.
0: let's touch on that when we come back. The music is playing. We've got to take a very quick okay. break. Alexander Hudson yeah. is my guest. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: Hey, welcome back to the show. So glad you could join us today. My guest is Alexandra Hudson, and we're going to continue our conversation with her in just a moment. I'm going to throw a very quick plug in here for Monticello College. Now, you've heard me talk about uh, liberal arts education. We talked with Dr. Shannon Brooks here actually just a few days ago about what it means to be LIBER. Um, I want you to go to my show notes at com. You will find a contact link there under my sponsors. Click on that. And, and I want you to see, they've got a beautiful website, lots of pictures to show you. But what does that kind of education look like? This is one possibility. And it may not be for everybody. That's okay. For those who recognize that's the kind of education I'm looking for, I think you would be very, very happy. All right, Lexi, it was kind of a cliffhanger as we went to the break. You were going to tell me about a self-improvement manual from 1908. And I'm dying to see what the difference is in emphasis on then versus now.
2: Thanks, Brian. So you asked a great question about how we cultivate this life of the mind. And I I take a page from uh, uh, this self-help book from 1908 by a guy named Arnold Bennett. Call, called how to live on 24 hours a day. And you can find this book for free. It's maybe 50 pages on, on Gutenberg, uh, project Gutenberg. It's, it's a fabulous book. And he basically says to have an intellectual life, a, you have to have one because it makes us human cultivating our minds, learning, nourishing our curiosity. That's what allow, that's what keep keeping to uh, continuing to grow. Um, uh, we need that to, to fully be the best version of ourselves. First of all, it's what he Says, then he says, and again, he's um, who are not. Too dissimilar from us, people. There were a lot of kind of social, economic changes going on where um, people were be- having, you know, an eight-hour workday for the first time. They were have they had disposable income for the first time. so They'd go to work, go to the office, come home, and then like just fritter away. And he's like, "No, time is your most precious resource. We need to be more zealous with how we use our time than we are with our money because, like, money you can always get a back. Get you know, earn more, but, but." time is is you know when you, you um you, the, you, you fritter fritter it away and you never get it back but the good news is you cannot spend your time in advance he says so it's so take take every moment <laughs> captive and how you um and how you spend your time and and he says to have an intellectual life do serious reading for an hour and a half three days a week. And to do that, create a day within a day, you have your work, your work day and then come home and you have a whole new day. He says, that's all yours to nourish your mind. And so it's just a really fun, uh, kind of a different era read, but uh, with with some great language and great quips. You can can really tell it's from 1908, but it's just so beautiful, so inspiring and a lot, a lot of fun. This is
0: how people used to use their leisure time, that time where they weren't, you know, um, earning a living and keeping a roof over their head and, and providing for their daily needs. Um, we've kind of strayed away from that. And I think a lot of that's, you know, in the form of our entertainment is, you know, vastly, you know, more improved in terms of the experience and the variety, but it's also kind of a distraction and that's a shame. Let's talk about what happens when a person decides I'm going to improve myself by improving my understanding, by becoming that well-rounded individual that you were describing earlier. What kind of effect does this have Not only on that person and the people in their immediate uh, company as they live their lives, but what happens to the generations that follow them?
2: I think it's, it's so interesting, um, Brian, to to, like, we we can get really discouraged when we look at these kind of macro level issues we're facing. Um, We can look at what's happening in Washington, we can look at what's happening around the world, we can look about about what's happening with the pandemic and get really discouraged because they're really big, really important, really complex problems. And we can feel kind of helpless, and that can be discouraging. But I think it's important to remember that that the power of one person deciding, um, you know, to be, to be salt and light to, to make it to, 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 to just, just be decent and good to their family, to their neighbors, um, to make their community better. That is an incredibly powerful decision that you can make. And it's, 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 it's the cumulative effect, uh, of people doing that, that can really, that can change a culture that can change a country. And, but not just that, um, it can also have reverberations across time. And uh, I wrote about this a few editions ago in my in my newsletter called Civic Renaissance, where I wrote about my grandmother, who um, sadly passed away one year ago uh, in January. And it was at her funeral hearing all of her five kids um, talk about their unique and beautiful relationships. Her and then looking to my side and seeing my my twenty five cousins uh, who who were wow. all present at her funeral and and realizing that. She was an incredible woman. She and my grandfather had a great marriage and they, they raised their, their kids to be, you know, people of integrity, but she really was kind of the, the glue of the family. And and she raised each of her four daughters and one son, um, to to be the glue in their families and the glue in their communities. And and they in turn uh taught people like me, all my me and my cousins to to have that that the, we could have that sort of effect, that we could we could uh wherever we went, we could sew light. And we could build community, and we could make people's lives better. That was the disposition that we were raised with, because they modeled that for us. They're constantly thinking, "Who can I bless today?" Uh, every day of the wow. pandemic, they've said, "Who can I call? Whose life can I make a little bit better and brighter during this time of, of darkness and isolation?" And it's it's people that that consciously make that just those kind of decisions that um that that make the world a, a, a tolerable place to live, because it is a really dark place sometimes. It's a lonely, lonely place. So-
0: sounds like exactly the kind of people that uh, times such as the ones we find ourselves in would uh, would uh, really we'd really benefit from having more people like that Sorry.
2: It's true. Uh, not a quorum. I, I always like to joke with my husband. We don't want we don't want too many people <laughs> that are like that. There's such a thing as uh, you know over over investment. But no, it's you're absolutely right, Brian. Um, it's it's it, we could definitely stand to um, have have more people like that that are that are thinking beyond their own personal problems and needs. I mean that's intuitive. Um, Facts of life that often the best antidote to feeling poorly about ourselves when, when, when we're, you know, very inwardly focused on our own issues is to look out and say, yes. you know, who can I help? And that is that it really is. A, it's counterintuitive to think um, helping others might help ourselves, but it really does. It really it gets our eyes off our own problems and just gives us a, a broader perspective that can really elevate our souls and spirit.
0: If I could be so bold, it can be the thing that that uh, shakes that uh, politicized tunnel vision that unfortunately a lot of people are suffering from right now, to where you know they can't even see one another as anything other than one-dimensional characters. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a lot easier to see people as people when you're serving them.
2: Absolutely, it's so true. We've got about
0: uh, we got about two minutes left here, um, Lexi. Let's talk about your Civic Renaissance. I want my listeners to be familiar with this because I think you're offering something uh, really ennobling to the community. Tell us about this project.
2: Thanks, Brian. So uh, the project is called Civic Renaissance, and it's. It's a newsletter, and I hope to grow it into kind of more multimedia to offer interviews with, with scholars and public intellectuals. We do a monthly book giveaway of uh, academic books often that are really expensive and not too accessible, <laughs> but are related to the theme of the of, of the newsletter, which is it's infusing goodness and beauty and truth into our public discourse and elevating our, our conversation and our national con- consciousness by, uh, by deploying and rediscovering the wisdom of the past. So it's a combination of looking to the past um, and, and reviving old insights. I do a lot of reading for my readers saying like, look, here's a book I read and here's what I liked about it. Here's why you should, you might enjoy it. Um, but I also do original reporting there as well. They, they, I, I write for outlets like the Wall Street Journal, like USA Today, but um, you know, editors are do what editors do and cut a lot of stuff. So a lot of the stuff that doesn't get into my articles, I, I, I share with my readers exclusively. Where, th- where are things going well? That's what I kind of report on. Where's, where are stories of Hope in our country where are people being the change and living out the life that um, of, of the future the vision of the country that they want they want that they want um, and so for people that uh, want to be uh, ennobled please please join Civic Renaissance
0: and and they can just find it if they google it uh, is there is there a, a website you want to direct them to <laughs>
2: Civic-Renaissance.com
0: Civic-Renaissance.com
2: Please subscribe.
0: Alexander Hudson, thank you so much for visiting with me. And thanks for for a, a very uplifting and positive conversation.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. Always appreciate it.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to uh, one of my new sponsors here. Um, in a roundabout way, this—it's—it's it's a new sponsor, old sponsor. It's—it's it's my friend John Staples who has asked me to tell you about the Rio del Sion. Home lots. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm probably saying it incorrectly, but this is right outside of Zion National Park. It's in between the city of Virgin and Zion National Park. If you've ever been through this kind of area, you, you know it is among the most beautiful places on the planet. And so I'm going to ask you go visit my show notes, thebrienhideshow.com. There in the sponsor links, you'll find a link you can click on that will actually take you to where you can get information about the home lots. There are still some of them available. I mean, I wish it was me. I really do. I wish it was me moving in there. It's just like right on the Virgin River. Absolutely gorgeous. But to tell them, thanks for sponsoring the show. And uh, where do we go from here? Here's here's something that has been on my mind. And I've been trying to think of, of a good way. How do you talk about the strange, crazy, hard, scary <laughs> kind of things that uh, that are coming at us right now? And this is on a lot of different fronts. I mean, the politics, yeah, we've, we've kind of come to expect that. The last four years have pretty much been a warm-up to the incivility that we see going on. But it's, it's catching up to other areas of our lives. I mean, you know, with the pandemic, I look at all the people who are struggling, not just financially, but struggling with their emotional well-being. We have been artificially sifted and kept separate from one another. There's, there's a distrust that has grown and, and sometimes you'll see this, you know, manifest itself in the, you know, this person's not wearing a mask and, you know, I have to correct them or, or something else. Or some of this person's wearing a mask and now I have to correct them. We seem very intent on correcting one another and not as intent on getting our own act together to the point that people around us recognize that we have something of value, something of substance that makes that possible. Now, by that, just so you know, I I don't want to, you know, leave you wondering, what does he mean, something of substance? I'm talking about the principles, the values, the ideals that are absolutely worth defending and promoting and living. They're not the kind of things that can be installed on other people by force. And unfortunately, this is somewhere where we have really lost sight of, you know, how government is supposed to operate. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to to describe it as, look, uh, depending on who wins this popularity contest, based on just partial participation of the whole population out there, there's only a, a small portion that actually gets out and votes. But based on that, the spears are either going to be pointed this way or that way. And that has been the nature of political systems since, well, roughly the Bronze Age. As Paul Rosenberg points out, it's something that just hasn't improved over time. Everything else in our lives, all the, all the other technologies have come a long way. Politics still is based on force at its heart. Because it, it's putting power into the hands of the collective and, and the state to make something happen. Because uh, political power demands that this happen. Now, I'll grant you, there's some pretty intense stuff that's going on. My goal is not to know every little thing, because I, I know some people who are like this. Where I Look, I hope I don't step on anybody's toes. If you, if you feel like I'm calling you out, I, I don't intend to, but I get texts. I get messages sent to me through the night, um, you know, video after video and, and meme after meme of, you know, we've, underco- we've uncovered the true controversy, the true conspiracy of what's happened here. And the funny thing is, there probably is an element of truth to every one of these. But the vast majority of them, I just discard as soon as I get. It's not that I don't appreciate you thought of me and sent it to me. I would encourage you, err on the side of sending it to me. But I only have so much time in a day that I can go through and evaluate what information would be worthwhile. And, and I don't want to make this awkward, but I'm going to tell you, I actually pray about this kind of stuff. I ask you know my creator what what would you consider you know a worthwhile topic or what help me find the things that will actually be of value to people and notice they're not all religious so it's not like well Brian just read from the scriptures for the next hour and you know everything's going to be great it's not that uh, that's not the point my job here isn't to try to convince you hey it's time to go to Sunday school man <laughs> my job is to to try to help stimulate independent thought to help you understand it is okay to question the narrative that does not make you an extremist. It does not make you some kind of a wild radical who wants to kill everyone who disagrees with them. It makes you a person who is serious about claiming, using, and defending his or her natural rights. Because that's, that's got to take place on an individual level. And I'm so grateful for those who have the courage to do this. Now, our real enemy, just so we're clear, is not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not progressives. It's not conservatives. Those are artificial designations for a much larger dynamic that is at work here. And it's the if you really if you want to break it down into a couple of camps, you can have collectivism versus the individual. But really it comes down to persuasion versus force. And so I'm going to use everything in my power to try to persuade you that, hey, this is something that's worth considering. In this case, what I'm asking you to consider is maybe the best thing we can do right now when there's so much that's out of our control, rather than just simply, you know, pick up a gun and we're going to go fix this by force, be the kind of person who is actively becoming the best person that you can be. And this is going to be different for each person. Some people will do this with more of a religious dynamic. Some people are going to do it, you know, just simply from a utilitarian standpoint. I'm getting fit. I'm, you know, going to be in the best shape I can be in. Some people are going to study and read and try to, you know, gain skills that they haven't had before. All of those things are okay. The idea is that we learn what we stand for. And when we stand for those things, we do it in such a way that we're not forcing other people, making them Bend the knee and admit I'm right. Go on, say it. Because that seems to be the approach a lot of folks are taking today. We don't want to be on the receiving end of it. And we pretty well should make sure we're not the ones, you know, administering it as well. Everybody has a blind spot. Everybody. I don't care how good you are. We think we can't be manipulated. We think we can't be stampeded with the rest of the herd. But... You know, human nature is pretty consistent. I have it, you have it, and and we're all, you know, trying to do our best to to stay on top of it as best we can. But how this is going to play out in large part is gonna be is going to depend on what kind of people we are to the people around us. And so here's what I'm persuading you. Don't be the person who's always there to point out what's wrong. I think back to my conversation with uh, Alexa, uh, Alexandra um, Hudson here a few minutes ago here, and she said something that uh, that really struck me when she talked about, you know, the value of of embracing that idea of a liberal arts education. And I'll, all I'm going to say, if, if the word liberal arts sounds just too highfalutin for you, that's fine. Just think of it as self-education by becoming ac- acquainted with the classics, by, by coming face to face with great minds that came before you. And it could be in any number of different disciplines or different areas. It's not like you, you don't want to be focused just on that one idea. That's, that's the definition of an ideologue. But when you become that better person, you are better equipped to talk to people, to speak their language, to persuade them, to lead if need be. And I know not everybody's looking for leadership positions right now, but, um, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. There's a better than average chance that at some point in the not so distant future, we're all going to be leading a lot more than we really feel comfortable doing. Being a well-rounded person will make you a better leader. It will enable you to better work with other people, to search for solutions and search for innovation in ways you haven't contemplated before. But the only way that's going to happen is when you start by improving yourself as opposed to trying to improve everybody around you. Now, which approach do you suppose, you know, your favorite bureaucracy or your favorite government agency prefers to take? They kind of like that one size fits all, you know, top down solution hammered down from the top. That's what's going to do it. I don't think so. When we come back from the break, I want to share something with you. This is an article that landed in my email inbox earlier today. Uh, this is from Valerie Durham. And I believe she's with Freedom Fest which you know caught my attention because this is a pretty serious gathering of people who are serious about freedom. And it's titled Gandhi was right, the change has to start with us. She's got some top-notch selection or uh, suggestions rather about ways that we can effect change within our own sphere of influence and without, you know, forcing other people to kneel and say that you were right. So stick around. We'll touch on that. Just the other side of these messages.
1: This is the Brian Hyde show. this is the Brian
0: Hyde show all right welcome back to the show so I, I I hope you can appreciate what a great departure this is from my early years of doing talk radio I was just I saw a, a memory pop up on Facebook earlier today and I guess it was about a year ago that uh, I think it was announced that uh, Rush Limbaugh had, uh, had definitely been diagnosed with, I think it was uh, stage 4 lung cancer, and uh, I, just, I had posted something about how I'm really grateful for Rush Limbaugh for opening my eyes to how much fun the talk side of radio could be, because I'm telling you, I was set. I was going to be the next Casey Kasem. I was going to be the next uh, Don Imus I have that kind of a weird sense of humor, maybe not as advanced as his, but I definitely leaned in that direction. And it turns out that I really loved uh, learning how to discuss and debate the issues. And I, man, I got into throwing the red meat and I was, I was a very reliable Rush Limbaugh clone. But I came to a point where I, I, I learned that, you know, as good as I was at riling people up, it just didn't seem to accomplish anything beyond that. And that bothered me because I I felt like there's a great missed opportunity taking place here. I think this can motivate people to think. I think it can can help change minds or at least introduce people to ideas that that they may not have considered before. But that doesn't work when when your goal is, you know, to make people angry or to, you know, zing them with some sick burn So I've evolved over the years now. I'm the kinder, gentler Brian that's, you know, telling people, hey, lose the need to win, speak the truth with love, plant the seeds, walk away, and let other people come to the truth at their own pace. This is so much more effective than trying to shout somebody into, you know, agreeing. I want to share with you this article from Valerie Durham. She is writing for the Freedom Fest organization. Gandhi was right. The change has to start with us. Listen to this. She says Gandhi was on to something when he said if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. We need not wait to see what others do. And then he personally applied that principle to his actions with enough intention and consistency to change an entire nation. Well, Valerie says the battle in this nation is on, and it's not just a battle over political policies anymore. The battle is over the battling itself. Politicians and leaders who now spout the word unity to combat the divisiveness that has gripped our nation and and, uh, more tightly more and more tightly have little intention of actually fostering such a thing as unity. In fact, the only unity that matters to them right now is agreeing with them 100%. And she says, let's face it, the stakes have become too high. Government has become so big and so powerful that the financial and the financial stakes so high that neither major political party feels it can afford to work together, find common ground or compromise. Neither major party wants to acknowledge that it only represents about half the voting block of United States citizens. The fact that half the nation has a different political perspective should create an imperative to work together. But instead, it has created an almost maniacal drive to push through policies as fast and hard as they can, while they can. Obama did it when he took office and Republican leaders and voters pushed back in 2010. Trump did it when he took office. Democratic leaders and voters pushed back in 2018. Biden and Harris are doing it now. And she says, I predict that Republican leaders and voters will, yes, yet again, marshal their efforts and will push back again in 2022. And the entire cycle begins again with no unity in sight. She says, frankly, it's like two toddlers fighting over the same toy. And it's time for the adults to step in. It's up to us. Now, she says, yes, it's us, the folks who believe in free speech, ethics, rule of law, persuasion rather than force and principles to do what's right. Instead of fighting back using the same vengeful, corrupt, obstinate, degenerative tactics that have characterized our political world for far too long. Yes, she says, it's hard to realize that change has to come from us. And it's not fair because the other side won't play fair along with us. At least not until we change the conversation. Not just the conversation, rather, but how the conversation is conducted. This is such good advice. She says it's going to have to come at a person-to-person level. It matters how you directly engage your neighbors, have conversations with your work colleagues, and respond on social media. So here are a few ideas that help us move from divisiveness back to civil discourse, which is the only constructive, controllable, and correct way to enact real change. Number one, she says, eliminate, but what about when equivalency? This is a technique that feels virtuous at first glance, but it has several key flaws if you're trying to change minds or make progress. First, it keeps us stuck in the past and in rehash, in a rehashing mindset. Now, this is seldom productive beyond identifying a commonly shared problem that perhaps both need fixed. Second, it asks the person you are trying to convince to take a big step in admitting fault, which can often be too big of an ask. So if you're setting up the conversation to go back and forth between finding equivalency of examples of bad behavior, rather than just trying to find forward looking examples for good behavior. This is really good advice. Number two, she says, avoid name calling, labeling, or making the other person the enemy think of a marriage or partnership anytime you see your spouse or partner as the enemy or start to name call each other you know that marriage or relationship is in trouble respect civility and self-control have gone out the window therapists will tell you unless you can get back to respecting each other as individuals the relationship is doomed well like it or not we have millions of fellow citizens individuals in our country who do not share our general political views in fact There probably isn't one single person in this country who shares every single political view you have. So if we continue to think of our fellow citizens who have different political views as the enemy, we cannot persuade them to open their minds and think differently. The enemy is someone we hate, someone we subjugate, someone we disrespect, someone we marginalize, someone we force. It's not civilized, respectful or productive. And it's what's caused divisiveness and damage to the freedoms that we see today. Which brings us to the reverse it hypocrisy check. This is good advice here too. I liked this one. To stay in persuasion mode, take a moment to reverse the conditions of the argument in your own mind. Would you feel the same way if the conditions were reversed? For example, has your mind ever been changed when someone called you a name? Did that open your mind up to their way of thinking? Did you ever think to yourself, oh, gee, that person thinks I'm stupid. I better listen to them. Probably not. Likewise, if you're talking about a recent presidential executive order, would you feel the same way if it was a president of your political party enacting an executive order for a policy you support? Do you cheer when Senate leaders break senatorial rules that support your way of thinking but disapprove when Senate leaders of the other party do the same thing? Consistency in principle is key to civil discourse and change. Number four, she says, find something to value in the other person's viewpoint. Find that common ground. Divisiveness isn't only what happens when you and your views are being dismissed or targeted. Divisiveness happens whenever the attempt to understand the other perspective devolves into labeling, name-calling, or dismissing the person's perspective wholesale. There's always something to find a value in another person's perspective. Perhaps their heart is in the right place, but their solution is wrong. Perhaps they haven't considered all the ramifications, and perhaps you haven't either. Perhaps they've only been exposed to one type of thinking due to their environment or education. When we disregard everything about a person's perspective, we cannot show them another possibility. Now, Valerie Durham says you must go. We must find common ground, that place where we can empathize and relate core concerns or values from that place. We can start to work together to create solutions to our common problems that protect our rights and freedoms rather than relegating our government to this high stakes push pull between political extremes. She says it may not seem fair, especially when the other side continues to ambush with name calling and other divisive tactics. It may be an uphill battle. But if our principles are right and just, and they are, then we must be willing to put them into action at all times, even when others do not. Gandhi also said, happiness comes when what you think, what you say, and what you do is in harmony. Well, Valerie Durham says our political happiness as a nation depends on our creating this alignment first within ourselves, then with our neighbors, families, and colleagues, and then with those all around us. If we truly want unity and tolerance, we must practice it ourselves. I really like her take on this. And I know this is hard, especially if if you are afraid and if you are angry. It's really hard to remember that this kind of approach is going to yield better results. Well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to be the reassuring voice of reason sitting on your shoulder and telling you, We can do this. But we got to be humble as we do it.
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show.